We are on the doorstep of the Festival of Joy, of the Festival of Sukkot, which is called Zman Simchaseinu, the time of our joy in the prayers. This is a seven-day festival. Two major festivals that we have in the year are the seven days of Pesach and the seven days of Sukkot, exactly a half a year, equidistant from each other. The 15th day of Nisan is Pesach, Passover. And the 15th day of Tishrei, so six months later, is the first day of Sukkot. Now, Sukkot is actually a little bit longer than Pesach because the seven-day festival is appendaged by Shmini Atzeres, which is a related but different festival. Now, of course, in the diaspora, we always add an extra day. So there's eight days of Pesach and eight days of Sukkot. So bringing the total of Sukkot when you add the extra day at the end to nine. And of course, these are wonderful days. You know, we just finished with the high holidays and Rosh Hashanah. Hopefully we coronated God, Yom Kippur. Hopefully we got a modicum of expiation and forgiveness and atonement and cleansing. And now it's time to celebrate. Now it's time for joy. We sit in the sukkah. We shake the lulav and the esrog and the four species. And of course, we celebrate the completion of the Torah. Every year we go through the Torah cycle. We have the annual cycle of the Torah. And that concludes on those appendage days. We call that Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. When we finish the Torah cycle and begin with Bereshis, with Genesis 1-1, anew. And of course, we dance with the Torah. So there's really a lot of different themes that we are about to encounter on these days. The days of Sukkot, the festival of joy. And of course, every year we try to examine a different angle of the festival. And today we're going to do the same. But unlike previous years, it's going to be a little bit more speculative. I think it's maybe also a little bit more advanced than what we typically try to do here. We're going to try to talk about some very big ideas. Uh, Some of the thoughts are still a work in progress. So as always, you can send me an email if you want to contribute towards the discussion My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Okay, so the eponymous mitzvah of the festival is the mitzvah of the sukkah. You sit in a temporary dwelling structure for seven days. For seven days, you leave your permanent house and you move into your temporary house, the sukkah, the temporary structure. What does this look like? There's, of course, many laws, details, but you have to have walls, a minimum of three walls. And it has to be covered. You have to have a roof, but the roof can't be like the roof of your house. It has to be more of a temporary roof. So it's covered with schach. So think of it as, you know, trees or branches that have been severed from the ground. And we leave our permanent home and we leave the cozy confines of the climate controlled permanent home and we move in to the temporary home. Now, in previous years, we've spoken at great length about the concept of the temporality of the sukkah. The Talmud tells us you have to leave, you have to abandon your permanent home, say Medir Keva, leave your permanent home and move into a temporary house. And this is like a, like a stark festival to remind us about the temporality of life, the actual challenge at the heart of our life is the choice of what we're going to do with our life. What are we going to prioritize? What are we going to strive for? And there's a intense conflict with that because we are wired, thanks to the Yitzhara, to look at this world and our existence as a body and our existence in our current configuration. That's the world that matters. And the whole idea of the soul is like a fuzzy idea. I don't know, do I have a soul or not? And what happens after I die, that's all mysterious and spiritual and abstract. And the Torah is there to make us kind of combat that perspective by thinking about the soul as being primary. That's our eternal self. The world of our soul is our eternal life. And we shouldn't get distracted by the temporary life and lose focus of what we're really here for. It doesn't make sense to abandon a life of eternity in exchange for 70, 80 years or so, if we're lucky. 
And that's so important. That's the, the centerpiece, so to speak, of our spiritual life and our spiritual agenda. And therefore, we have to have seven days where we take even our existence here and make it deliberately more temporary by leaving our permanent house and moving into our temporary house and reminding ourselves that our whole life really here is just temporary. And we're here to try to kind of fuel a journey to Olam Abba, to the spiritual world, which is indeed our permanent life. Seven days you spend, Sukkot, and exactly six months later, equidistant, we have another seven-day festival. And the centerpiece of that festival, the eponymous mitzvah of that festival, is Chag HaMatzos, Matzah. Of course, this is the exact same theme. It is nutrition devoid of any pizzazz, devoid of any excitement. It's just there to fuel the journey. You don't care about how it tastes. It has no appeal. It's not exciting. It'll get you to where you need to go. And therefore, we have these two festivals spread out throughout the year, seven days to really dwell on the subject because it is the epicenter of our spiritual agenda. That's what we've spoken about in the past. Today, I want to approach the festival and its central mitzvah from a different angle. The Torah tells us, this is Leviticus 23, 43, Parshas Emor, which talks about all the festivals. Basukos teshvu shivas yamim. You should sit in the sukkah for seven days. Everyone amongst you, the entire nation, should sit in the sukkah for seven days. And why? So the following verse tells us, in order that your generations shall know that the Almighty made us dwell in Sukkos, in temporary houses, in booths, during the Exodus. During the Exodus, the Almighty made us sit in a Sukkah. And therefore, now, thousands of years later, we still sit in a Sukkah for seven days, like the Torah tells us. So we should remember, and our generations should know that when we left Egypt, the Almighty placed us in a sukkah. So why do we sit in a sukkah, dwell in a sukkah, leave our permanent home, so to speak, permanent? Of course, it's still temporary. It's only 70 years permanent. But leave our quote-unquote permanent home, move into the temporary home. Why? To remember and to make sure that all our generations know that during the Exodus, the Almighty made us sit in a sukkah as well, and therefore... It is important to remember that, to remember that and to perpetuate that, and therefore we do that for seven days. What exactly is the nature of those sukkos, sukkahs that we dwelled in after the Exodus? So you look at Rashi's commentary and that's and that same verse in Leviticus. Rashi says two words Anane Hakavod. Clouds of glory. What does it mean that the Almighty made us a sukkah to dwell in during the Exodus? That's not a literal sukkah. Like, well, we have a structure made of some material with a, with a covering on top. Oh no! That's a reference to clouds of glory. Anane kavod. Clouds of glory. Now, to be fair, it's a dispute in the Talmud. According to one opinion, it's referring to actual booths, actual sukkahs. According to second opinion, it's referring to a more metaphysical sukkah enclosure that the Almighty enveloped us in clouds of glory during the Exodus. But Rashi her sides with the opinion of the Talmud that the mitzvah of the sukkah is to commemorate and to be emblematic of the clouds of glory that enshrouded us after the Exodus. Now, what exactly are these clouds of glory and what messages they are imparting within us? That's the subject we're trying to ponder today. Okay, so where do we read about these clouds of glory? So if you look at the Exodus story, right after the Exodus, the Torah tells us this is 1321, of the book of Exodus, the Almighty went before the Jewish people by day with a pillar of cloud 
to show us the way to go. And at night, with a pillar of fire to illuminate before us. And there was never a time that we didn't have either the cloud of day or the fire of night. We were always kind of protected by this divine enclosure, a cloud by day, a fire at night. Now, the commentaries tell us that these were not ordinary clouds that carry rain that we see in our sky. These were completely spiritual clouds with all kinds of miraculous properties. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there were three miracles ever present in the wilderness for 40 years. And they came in the merit of three great leaders of our nation who happened to be siblings. Who are they? Miriam, Aaron, and of course, the youngest brother who towered above them all, Moshe. These are the leaders of the Jewish people. Miriam's the, she's the female prophetess, we're told. Aaron, he's the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And Moshe, these are three siblings, and each one of them, in their merit, brought us a miracle. How so? We had a well of water following us in the wilderness, and that's how we drank water, and that came in the merit of Miriam. And we had manna falling from heaven for 40 years, and that came in the merit of Moshe. And we had clouds of glory that enshrouded us, and that is in the merit of Aaron. Now, if I told you that there's manna falling from heaven, you would say, okay, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. A whole nation to feed a nation, billions and billions served. That's what you would need to feed a nation three meals a day, a nation comprised of millions of people, for 40 years. That's a miracle. If there is a water, a miraculous water wellspring that's just following the nation, well, that's a miracle. Clouds? I've seen clouds. I've never seen any manna, but clouds I've seen. Why is this such a great miracle? So when you open up the Midrash, you find some amazing things about these clouds. First of all, it wasn't just one cloud, we're told in the Midrash. It was a sandwich, a cloud sandwich. The nation was completely surrounded by clouds. There's a cloud beneath them. There's a cloud above them. There is one cloud in every direction, so four around them. So they're in a cloud cube of six clouds, kind of isolated and hermetically sealed from the environment around them. And there was a seventh cloud that was like a scout going ahead and clearing the path for the nation. And it made the topography uniform. If there was a mountain in their way, it would flatten the mountain. That's pretty cool. If there was a valley, it would fill the valley. It would make that the track was completely easy. If there were dangers like snakes or scorpions, which are quite prevalent in the desert, it would kill them. According to the Midrash, it left only three mountains. There are only three mountains in the journeys that were untouched by these clouds, and they are Mount Sinai, because we needed that for the Torah, and Mount Hor, upon which Aaron was buried, and Mount Nevo, where Moshe was buried. Besides for that, it was completely smooth. It seems to me that like after the nation passed, then the the mountain would prop itself back up because there's still many mountains in the vicinity where the nation went. But when they actually traveled, it temporarily lowered the mountains and filled in the valleys. Now, it actually left a little mound upon which the tabernacle could be placed. So at least the tabernacle could always be higher, could be on an elevated platform above the nation. The Midrash tells us that when their clothes got dirty, they would take the clothes off and put them in the cloud, and the cloud would clean their clothing. Pretty cool. For 40 years, we're told in the Midrash, 
they didn't need the sun or the moon to discern between day and night. When things whitened, they knew it was day. When things reddened, it was the fire of night. They were completely isolated from the climate around them. They were cocooned in these pleasant clouds of glory. Now, as an aside, this is symbolic of what the nation during those 40 years is really trying to do. The Amai is going to remove any distractions and tend to all their needs so that way they could study Torah and they could spend 40 years absorbing and integrating and digesting the messages of the Torah without any impediments, without anything blocking them. In fact, the Mitzvah tells us that the plan originally was to leave Egypt, make a quick pit stop at Sinai, and to hustle over to the land. If you look at a map, Egypt and the land of Israel are very close. Yet, it took him 40 years. Says the Midrash, why? You get to Israel. Everyone's got to figure out accommodations. Everyone's got to find a place to live. Everyone's got to start planting vineyards and orchards and fields. When will they ever study Torah? So they might have created this artificial time in history where the nation has all their needs covered. There's no need that you have to work hard to get. Your food, it just rains down from heaven. Your water, well, there's there's just a miraculous well following you. Your clothing, you don't need to deal with that. Your shoes grew with you, the verse tells us. Everything's taken care of. You have Moshe, and he's there. And 24 hours a day, everyone's studying Torah. That's what they're doing. And the nation is absorbing the messages of Torah so deeply into our bones that even when we forget the Torah later, and we come back to it, if we are so fortunate, we feel like we're coming home. It became so deeply embedded into the soul of the nation because it spent 40 years really absorbing it completely. And they might just kind of blocking out anything else that might distract us. And this environment, this artificial environment by these clouds of glory kind of symbolizes this idea you are completely cordoned off sequestered from the rest of humanity and the rest of the nonsense of this world for 40 years. Study Torah. Everything that you need is covered. Now, as an aside, a lot of the skeptics ask the following question. How could the Torah be true? If the nation, if the nation traveled for 40 years in the wilderness, where are all the whiskey bottles and where are all the, you know, the leftover food? And where, where's the physical remnant, so to speak? The, the physical artifacts that they would have left in the wilderness. So first of all, it's not such a good question because if you know how the desert works, if there is an encampment and 40 years later, there's enough wind and chaos, so to speak, in the environment that you won't even find the encampment 40 years later. But we have to remember. Torah is telling us that this is a very artificial, by our standards, maybe by the heavenly standards, this is quite natural, but this is a very artificial kind of living. They're eating manna, and the manna, we're told, they don't need to excrete. Everything you have is perfectly tailored. Nothing has to be, there's no refuse. They're drinking water from a miraculous well. They're surrounded by these clouds. They're kind of cordoned off and, and, and sequestered, isolated, siloed off from everything else that happens in a normal way of life. It's a nation kind of suspended between heaven and earth. They're physical, but they're living in this very artificial environment. They're not leaving the trash around. There is no trash. They're not focusing at all on their physical needs. It's 40 years of spiritual immersion. They're living in this kind of hermetically sealed environment. You don't imagine that they would leave much physical remnants. And of course, that is because of the clouds, clouds of glory. Thank you, Aaron. The clouds made them invisible to their enemies. If you remember, in Parshas Balak, in the middle of the book of Numbers, Balak is a king of the Moabites, and he conscripts Bilam to go curse the nation. And the verse tells us, this is 22.5 of the book of Numbers, he sent messengers to Bilam. There's a nation that left Egypt, and they covered the land, 
and behold, he is dwelling opposite me. And I need you to come and curse them to destroy them because otherwise they'll destroy us. So the commentaries explain that he's, he's sitting or he's dwelling opposite me. That's not a very clear coordinates of where this nation is. So the commentaries explain he's sitting opposite me. He's here somewhere, but I don't know where he is. Because of these clouds, they rendered us invisible to our enemies. And that's why they were so frightened, because there's this enemy with this invisibility cloak of the clouds, and no one could see them. And in fact, if you study very carefully what happened right after the death of Aaron, the very next thing that happens in the Torah is the nation is attacked by Amalek. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Titus, page 9a, that when Aaron died, because these clouds who had enshrouded us for almost 40 years, they were in his merit. So Aaron dies, the clouds go away. And the nation is suddenly exposed to their enemies. And right away, Amalek swoops in and attacks us. Now, eventually, Talmud tells us the clouds of glory were restored in the merit of Moshe. But there was this period in time where they were exposed, and that's why they were attacked. Now, these clouds also, they determined or they signaled the nation's journeys. The verse tells us, this is Bamidbar 9.19, when the clouds ascended from atop of the tabernacle, that's time to move. And you would just follow the cloud. The cloud would tell you where to go. And once it settles in a place, well, that's where you now encamp. These were pretty unbelievable clouds. And they were such a central part of life after the Exodus for 40 years. Of course, once you cross over the Jordan, now we're living as regular, ordinary humans. Still, we have Joshua prophecy and all that. But we're kind of removed from that supernatural level of existence. It's time to live as normal, ordinary humans. And therefore, those 40 years are really special. And it's really important for us to remember that. And it makes sense that we spend seven days in the Sukkah to perpetuate the memory of these clouds and what they did for us in the wilderness. I'll tell you something cool. The Gona Vilna, he revealed that the apocalyptic war of Gog and Magog, that's going to happen on the festival of Sukkot. In fact, if you look at the prayers that we say on Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last day of Sukkot, we talk about this miracle that we're hoping for during this war. Now, how long will this war take? So the Kohen of Vilna, who passed away in 1797, way before the time that they split the atom, he said that this war is going to take three hours. And a huge chunk of the world's not going to make it. And it's going to be on Sukkot. And anyone who is in the sukkah is going to survive. Just as those clouds of glory protected us, and when the Egyptians shot projectiles into the clouds, the clouds expelled them, the clouds repelled them, because these clouds were protective, so too, when we are in the sukkah, we're going to survive this war. He quotes a verse in Psalms 27, The Almighty will shelter me in his sukkah on this evil day. He's going to give us protection in his tent. There's going to be a war, we're told, in the future, this apocalyptic kind of end of civilization level war. What this means exactly, I don't know. But there's going to be, or there are prophecies about this war. It's going to happen on Sukkot. And the only Kevlar, the only shelter, is going to be the Sukkah. That's how we're going to survive. And in fact, if you look on the Haftorah that we read on Shabbos Cholomot, so Shabbos of the intermediate days of Sukkot, we read about the war of Gog and Magog. 
So this is the time where we have the remembrance of these amazing clouds of glory came in the merit of Aaron, and we perpetuate that in the sukkah. And to a certain degree, when we build our sukkah, it is actually a reenactment of those clouds of glory. And even though it seems quite porous, look at the sukkah, right? Sukkah doesn't even need to have four walls. It could have holes in the wall. It could have lattice walls. And the roof is also porous. Nevertheless, it is granted the same protection of the clouds of glory, and it could protect us from even this apocalyptic three-hour war. So now, that's the background of this idea. Pretty amazing idea, very advanced, that during the Exodus, there were these clouds of glory for 40 years, and that really colored and shaded, if you will, the life of the nation for these 40 years. In the merit of Aaron, all these miracles happened, and we have to remember that. And therefore, the Torah tells us, sit in the sukkah for seven days to remember, so all your generations shall remember that the Almighty made for us those clouds of glory. Now, there's a lot of questions that we have to ask to parse out this subject. What is the idea of clouds of glory? The word kavod or glory or honor is a very important word. What exactly it means and what it portends is, of course, a subject worthy of inquiry. Why specifically was the manna in the merit of Moshe and the well in the merit of the oldest sister Miriam and the clouds of glory specifically in the merit of Aaron? And why is the festival specifically about the clouds of glory? Why don't we have a manna festival? Wouldn't that be cool? Shouldn't we have one of those or the Wellspring of Miriam festival? But I want to probe this subject with a very famous question, one of the most famous questions on the entire festival. We know that in the Jewish calendar, we believe it's not a linear calendar. It's almost like a a calendar that repeats itself. The Almighty created the world with junctures of time. And therefore, when we go to Pesach, the day of the Exodus, the day of the revelation, the day of the salvation, that is a day, and it always was a day, of salvation. And so if you remember when the when the angels came to Lot to go take him out of Sodom and Gomorrah, the verse tells us that he was making matzahs. Why was he making matzah? So Rashi tells us because it was Pesach. Now if you just read that, you would think that that is anachronistic. After all, this is before Isaac is born. And this is certainly before Jacob was born. And this is before Joseph was born. And this is before Joseph went to Egypt. And this is before the nation went down to Egypt and spent hundreds of years in Egypt. And then they had the Exodus. And that's why we have Pesach. And that's why we have Matzah. But Lot, 500 years beforehand, to be precise, 400 years beforehand, is making Matzah because it is Pesach. So this is clear evidence that there was always the power of Pesach and redemption on that day. And Lot had a tradition from Abraham that this day, the way to kind of tap into the spiritual power and energy of that day is with the matzah. It took 400 years for everyone to know exactly how powerful this day was because on this day and only on this day, the nation was saved from Egypt. So the kind of the salvation from Egypt is revealing to us the power that the day always had. And therefore, we get to Pesach in the 2020s. And that day is a day that is and was and always will be designated for salvation and redemption. It's almost like the Exodus is revealing to us the power of the day, not creating the power of the day. So it makes sense to celebrate Pesach on the day that the Exodus happened. And it made sense to celebrate Shavuos, the day that marks the festival of the given Torah, on the day that the Sinai experience actually happened. On the day that 
heaven and earth touched. That's the day that it happened. That's the day that we ourselves can receive Torah. Yom Kippur is the day that the Almighty forgave the Jewish people. It's the day of forgiveness. Rosh Hashanah is the day that Adam was created and the Almighty's kingship was established. And therefore, that is the power of the day. What happened on the 15th day of Tishrei that makes it worthy of it being the first day of Sukkot? If you look throughout the entire Torah, you find nary an indication of why this day, specifically this day, is the day that marks the beginning of the festival. And in fact, we're told that the reason why we celebrate it, the reason why we have seven days of the Sukkah is to remember the Exodus. Well, when the Exodus happened, six months prior. So why are we celebrating it six months after it happened? This is a very famous question that many of the commentators ask, and there's many different answers to this question. Why are we celebrating Sukkot, which is there to mark the Exodus? And what happened to us after the Exodus, the Almighty made for us booths or clouds of glory. Well, when did that happen? Right after the Exodus. Six months before we commemorate it. We memorialize it. We remember it. We relive it. That's the question that everyone asks. And one of the answers is very pertinent to our subject. And I think it's a good portal to try to get into the essence of what's happening over here. The Gona Vilna tells us something fascinating. The Jewish people leave Egypt and the Almighty envelops us in the clouds of glory. By day we have a cloud, by night we have the fire. It's amazing. And we travel to Sinai and we have the Sinai revelation and Moshe goes up to heaven and he spends 40 days in heaven and he gets the first set of tablets. He comes back down on the 17th day of Thomas and there is a cataclysmic, catastrophic disaster waiting for him. The nation's in the center of the golden calf. So what does Moshe do? He takes the tablets and he shatters them to the foot of the mountain. And he takes the golden calf and he grinds it into powder and puts it in the water and makes everyone drink from it. And he rallies the troops and he conscripts all the Levites and they go kill all the people that participated. And he's able to stave off destruction. The Almighty wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And Moshe stopped it. And Moshe started praying. And after 40 days of praying, God says, okay, I've listened to your prayer. Make yourself a second set of tablets. Ascend to the mountain for a third time. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make up for those tablets that were destroyed. After 40 days on the mountain, he comes back down with a second set of tablets on Yom Kippur. But what happened with the sin of the golden calf? The sin of the golden calf was a disaster. It was a sin, we've talked about this in the past, it was a sin reminiscent of Adam's sin in the garden. When the nation experienced prophecy at Sinai, they were like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Completely spiritual. And then they do the sin and their level drops. And all the perks that they had previously were stripped away from them. Talmud tells us that each Jew had two crowns, one for Naseh, one for Nishma, one for we will do and one for we will listen. They do the sin, the golden calf, and those crowns are stripped off of them. And you know what else they lost? They lost the clouds of glory. The nation is exposed. The clouds of glory that have accompanied them for 50 days from the Exodus to Sinai and from 40 days from Sinai to the center of the golden calf. So it's been, it's been 90 days, it's been three months. Gone. The nation is once again vulnerable and exposed. So Moshe is intervening, and on the first day of Elul, Moshe goes up with a set of tablets to be inscribed by God, 
After 40 days, the Almighty inscribes on the second set of tablets the identical messages of the first set of tablets, the identical Ten Commandments, and Moshe comes down on Yom Kippur. And what happens the next day? So Rashi tells us in the Torah, the very next day, which is the, so Yom Kippur is the 10th day of Tishrei, the next day is the 11th day of Tishrei. On the 11th day of Tishrei, Moshe begins the fundraising drive for the tabernacle. And he gives the list of the various different materials we need, the various woods and the various precious stones and the precious metals and various hides and leather, wool. That's day 11 of Tishrei. And the fundraising drive begins right away. Day 12, day 13, fundraising. The Torah tells us that they spent two days fundraising. So what's that? Day 10, he comes down. Day 11, he gives the instruction. Day 12, day 13, they fundraise. Day 14, they make an announcement. No more fundraising. We have everything that we need plus extra. And what do they do on day 15? On day 15 of the month of Tishrei, five days after Moshe came down with the second set of tablets, they start building the Mishkan. They start building the tabernacle. The day that marks the beginning of Sukkot coincides with the very same day that the nation began the construction effort of the tabernacle of the sanctuary of God on earth as instructed to Moshe. And what happened? The clouds of glory came back. So we got the clouds of glory with the Exodus and then we lost them 90 days later. And then after various rounds of intercession, 40 days plus 40 days plus five days, so 85 days later, they start building the tabernacle and the clouds of glory come back. And therefore, Sukkot marks the time where the clouds of glory were restored to the nation. And that's why it makes a lot of sense for us to once again, at this moment, on this day, sit again in the clouds of glory of our Sukkah to remember that this is the day that we actually got the clouds of glory back after we had lost them with the sin of the golden calf. That is the calculation that Golden Vilna makes. Brilliant, absolutely clever, wonderful, Fantastic, sensational, terrific. And here's where I want to try to enter the subject a bit deeper. So first of all, what is unexplained is what exactly does the tabernacle have to do with the clouds of glory? We're told that when the nation started building the tabernacle, that's when the clouds of glory were restored. Not on Yom Kippur, but five days later, the day that we mark with the festival of Sukkot. What does the tabernacle have to do with the clouds of glory? Number one. Number two, on Yom Kippur, the Almighty forgave the Jewish people. We had tablets 1.0. We lost them. We got tablets 2.0 on Yom Kippur. A day of forgiveness, expiation. Atonement, cleansing, purification. But the clouds didn't come back. The clouds just weren't restored. Next day, instruction to build the Mishkan. Next day, and and the one that followed, assembling all the parts. The The fourth day, the 14th day of Tishrei. That's it, no more work. The 15th day, you start building the Mishkan. And now and only now, the clouds return. Wasn't there complete forgiveness on Yom Kippur? And here's another two questions. These are some of my favorite questions on the subject. Listen to this. Tell me if you like these questions. So we got the clouds of glory. We got them twice. Right with the Exodus. When we left, we got the first version of the clouds of glory. And we had it for 90 days. And then we lost it. We did the sin and we lost it. And then 85 days later, on the 15th day of Tishrei, they were restored in conjunction 
with the building of the Mishkan, with the building of the tabernacle. And therefore, we have the festival of Sukkot to mark the time that we got the clouds of glory back. So even though we got the clouds of glory back on the 15th day of Tishrei, the initial time that we got them, that was on the 15th day of Nisan. So why do we celebrate the return of the clouds and not the inception of those clouds with the Exodus? And this question kind of has a precedent to it. Because if you think about it, we got the Torah twice as well. When do we get the Torah? On the festival of Shavuos, that's when we got tablets 1.0. That's when the sign of revelation happened. And that's when we got the Torah initially. And then 40 days later, we do this in the golden calf and we lose it. And then it's all restored to us on Yom Kippur. That's when we got the second set of tablets. Yet when do we celebrate the giving of the Torah? On Shavuos, when we got it originally, not on Yom Kippur, when it was restored to us. So there's inconsistency. When it comes to Torah, the festival of the giving of the Torah is celebrated, is marked on the original date of the giving of the Torah. We lost it, we got it back, but we still celebrate the original date. Whereas when it comes to the clouds and the festival that is Related to the clouds, i.e. Sukkot, we don't celebrate the original time that we got it. We celebrate the restoration. 2.0. What is happening over here? (laughs) Are these good questions? I like them a lot. Okay, here's here's what I want to suggest. This is where I'm getting a little bit into speculation territory. Our nation has many leaders. Of course, the the greatest leader we've ever had and the first leader of the nation with the Exodus is Moshe. But even Moshe, Moshe comes with Aaron, his sister as well as a leader of the nation. But each one of them has a very different role to play. Moshe is the intermediary between God and the nation. And his job is to bring the divine inspiration from heaven above to us below. So, of course, Moshe is in charge of getting the Torah. Where, where does he get the Torah from? He goes up to heaven and he extracts the Torah from heaven and brings it down here. And there's three miracles that happen to the nation. There's the well, there's the clouds, and there's the manna. Which one is Moshe's miracle? It's the manna. Because that's what Moshe does. Moshe goes to heaven and brings goodies and goodness and Torah and inspiration and wisdom and all kinds of fantastic gifts from heaven above here. That's what the man is. Heavenly food showered down by God in the merit of Moshe because that's what Moshe is. Moshe is like the pipeline connecting these two worlds. But if you think about it, Moshe doesn't really do house calls. The manna drops, it drops down, and it almost like drops down in bulk, and everyone has to leave their tent and go find their manna and bring it to their tent. It's almost like the, the last mile is not done by Moshe. He's the nation's interface with God, but once the goodness comes here, he has to have kind of his lieutenants to teach the Torah. So we have that system of the hierarchical system, leaders of a thousand, leaders of a hundred, and leaders of 50 and leaders of 10, kind of distributing, so to speak, the, the inspiration that Moshe gets from heaven to the nation. What's Aaron's role? Aaron, of course, never ascends to heaven. He's Moshe's partner, Moshe's right-hand man, but he doesn't go to heaven. He has a very different role to play amongst the nation. His job is here. Of course, we know that Aaron exemplified creating peace between man and his fellow and husband and wife. And he was about drawing people closer to Torah. Aaron's job is is here. It's to take the heavenly inspiration and make something special and enduring in this world from that. 
He's there to kind of connect with us on an individual level. He's the cause of the clouds. Clouds don't rain down from heaven. Clouds are always around us. They never depart from us. There's always clouds with us. And they're always, they're mobile. They're, they're, they're following us, so to speak. They're, they're moving with us. They're not from the heaven. It's all in our dimension. It's not like the manna. The clouds are here with us. And those are the two roles that these two giants played. And then what happened? There was a sin golden calf. And there was a major adjustment of the portfolio of Moshe versus the portfolio of Aaron. It seems like Moshe's role shrunk a little bit, whereas Aaron's role expanded, was augmented a little bit. So you have Moshe. He gives us the Torah. And he descends from heaven and it happened twice. Happens really three times, but twice with Torah. Sinai, Yom Kippur. And both times he comes bearing tablets. But there's a very big difference and a downgrade of tablets 2.0 versus tablets 1.0. The first one, the first Luchos, both the actual stone of the tablets and the inscription on those tablets is the handiwork of God. It's completely godly. The second set of tablets are more of a hybrid. God tells Moshe, you carve the stones. I will inscribe on the stones that you carve, but you do half the work, and I'll do the other half. It's almost like the degree, so to speak, of Moshe pulling down that heavenly inspiration is downgraded. It's less. The kind of Torah that he's bringing from heaven above is a little bit more diluted, shall we say, with physicality, if you will, with with human involvement, given that these tablets are not completely the handiwork of God. So if we're going to celebrate the giving of the Torah, it made sense to do it when we got kind of the most intense version of that, when the giving of the Torah was at its zenith, at Sinai, on Shavuos, Luchos, tablets 1.0, that has a much higher level. Now, concomitant with, so to speak, the downgrade of the revelation of Moshe is the upgrade of Aaron's role, the expansion of Aaron's responsibility and portfolio. We have the Exodus, and there are clouds. And these are awesome clouds. These are miraculous clouds. They provide all kinds of physical protection. It's so convenient. It's climate controlled. Your clothes are clean. The mountains are flattened. The valleys are filled. The dangerous snakes and scorpions are removed. Aaron's role, so to speak, is very important. He's creating an environment for us that we could flourish. But it's very physical. With the sin of the golden calf, that changes. Aaron's role is going to be expanded. He's going to be in charge of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. The environment that Aaron is responsible for is now including also the Mishkan, also the tabernacle. There's going to be an environment of holiness and worship here. The tabernacle, it's almost the exact opposite of what Moshe is doing. Moshe is bringing the heavenly inspiration and bringing it down to us. The tabernacle is almost the exact opposite. It's taking a cow. It's taking a sheep. It's taking a ram. It's taking a lamb. It's taking an animal, a very physical thing, and ascending it to heaven. It's taking the physical environment, so to speak, and making it very holy, infusing it with holiness. So, of course... Before the sin, before the Mishnah was in the cards, by the way, this is an accepted principle, that had the nation not sinned with the sin of the golden calf, they would not have had the tabernacle. In fact, if you look right after Sinai, the verse says, wherever you utter my name, I will come to you and bless you. After Sinai, there wasn't a concentrated point of holiness. It was widely distributed everywhere. It was ubiquitous. With the sin of the golden calf, it became more concentrated. There was like a point of holiness here, 
that exceeded the holiness featured elsewhere. So the sin of the golden calf actually, in a weird way, benefited us because now we have the Mishkan. Just as Adam's sin benefited us, now we have Torah. Before Adam's sin, there was no room for Torah. After Adam's sin, we get the the benefit, shall we say, of Torah. Sin of the golden calf is the same thing. With the sin of the golden calf comes the expansion of Aaron's role to create an environment of holiness here and to have the Mishkan. And the clouds, they change their role as well. The clouds, of course, were symbolic of Aaron's role of creating an environment of holiness here. Beforehand, there was no Mishkan. There was no tabernacle. The clouds were great. It was a wonderful miracle. But now with the tabernacle, the clouds are going to be upgraded. The environment in which we're going to live is going to be upgraded as well. And we read in Exodus chapter 40 that the cloud now hovered permanently above the Mishkan. Aaron's role was expanded. The clouds are now symbolic, not just of God's protection of us, but of God's presence in our midst. The clouds now indicate God's presence in our environment. So if we're going to choose to celebrate the clouds, which one are we going to do? It makes a lot more sense, of course, to celebrate the clouds after they were restored and upgraded, and now they're part of the Mishkan. Now they have a spiritual dimension as well, or an advanced spiritual dimension as well. And now I'm going to speculate a bit further. And forgive me if I'm a little bit too speculatory or speculative today. We know with the sin of the golden calf, Aaron tried to dissuade the mob and was unsuccessful. Maybe the reason why he was unsuccessful is because his portfolio was smaller. He was the clouds sans the tabernacle. Had he had the tabernacle, had he been endowed, so to speak, with the responsibility, the spiritual responsibility of the tabernacle, maybe he would have been able to quell the mob. So what happens? There's a shift here. Moshe's role is going to be shrunk in favor, so to speak, of Aaron's role expanded. If you look at the very final verse of the Torah, this is the punctuation, the climax, so to speak, of the eulogy of Moshe. It talks about Moshe's great hand and all the miracles and wonders that Moshe did before the eyes of all of Israel. Says Rashi, what is this grand accomplishment, that, that, that final exclamation mark of Moshe's greatness? What did he do in front of the eyes of all of Israel? He shattered the tablets. Moshe's greatest accomplishment was shattering the tablets. Maybe it makes sense now, because by doing that, Moshe is in effect choosing to minimize his own role and to hand off some of his responsibilities to Aaron. The tablets 2.0 plus the Mishkan equals the tablets 1.0. There's going to be less revelation and that holiness is going to be supplanted by the Mishkan in that environment of Aaron expanding his role And that indeed takes a lot. That indeed is the greatest testament to Moshe's greatness as a leader, that he's willing to forego his own greatness, so to speak, in favor of what the nation needs, in favor of his brother. Sukkot, we're told, is a time of joy. A couple of months ago, we did a podcast about joy. And the essence of the idea is that we discovered that joy is the experience of creating harmony amongst opposites. When heaven and earth unite, that's a time of joy. Here, it's almost like Sukkot is the time where the revelation, the Sinaitic, the mosaic revelation, and the environment that we have over here are united, are at par with each other. That's what the festival is all about. 
Sukkot is about creating this holy environment, emblematic, symbolic of the clouds of glory brought to us by Aaron, or courtesy of Aaron. We had a holy revelation on Yom Kippur, and immediately following that, it's time to take that revelation and that kind of that spiritual transformation, so to speak, and translate that to the environment in which we live. Of course, we cannot build a sanctuary, a literal sanctuary, but it's the time to build a sanctuary for God in our heart. So for seven days, we reenact the clouds of glory. We make the sukkah, and our sages tell us that they, at least they contain the possibility of achieving the same degree of loftiness as the clouds of glory. In fact, if you look at the at the halacha, the halacha talks about the sukkah almost like it's the temple. We can't forget that we're sitting in God's environment. We have to sit there with uh, with trepidation, and we shouldn't say trivial themes in the sukkah. We are in the palace of the king. There is an ancient custom to invite what's called the Ushpizen. Have you heard of that? Ushpizen. Ushpizen is the Aramaic word for guests. We invite guests to our sukkah. So, of course, that means we can invite our neighbor and our cousins and our siblings and our parents and our children. But it also means that we invite the seven greatest people of our history and they come to our sukkah with their souls. Can you imagine? Who are these seven greatest leaders of our people? On day one, we invite Abraham. Abraham, can you imagine? Abraham comes to our sukkah. What would Abraham want to do there? It's a great mystery initially. But if our sukkah is an environment of holiness, it becomes so lofty and so transcendental, it becomes a fitting place to invite Abraham to come join us in. Day two, we invite Isaac. On day three, we invite Jacob. On day four, we invite Joseph. On day five, we invite Moshe. On day six, Aaron comes. On day seven, King David comes. In fact, there's even a text that you're supposed to say to invite them. We're inviting the greatest people of history into our orbit. We're creating this environment of holiness where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the seven greatest leaders of our people feel comfortable joining it. That's who we want to spend Sukkot with. That's the kind of environment that we're creating. And when we leave the circa, there's a special prayer that we say, hoping and praying to merit to sit in the circa of the flesh of the Leviathan. Well, what does that mean? What is the flesh of the Leviathan? So the major says, well, there's this massive animal called a Leviathan, and there was a male and a female, and had they been allowed to procreate, they would destroy the whole world, and they might have killed one of them, put it on salt, salted it, and that's what we're going to eat in this feast after the apocalypse. Okay, that sounds very exciting. What it means, I don't know. But the basic structure of this idea is that on Sukkot, for seven days, we are sitting in the environs, in the atmosphere of the clouds of glory. For seven days, we have that experience. We are spiritually mimicking what it was like to be in the clouds of glory. But our aspirations are to make this not only a seven-day excursion, our aspirations are to make that a permanent level of existence, a permanent level of consciousness. To make it our permanent reality. And that is done in some future time after the evil is banished from the land. And that is symbolized by us sitting in the sukkah of the Leviathan. Very lofty ideas. But if we develop a certain spiritual sensitivity over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when we come into the sukkah, 
we could get a little bit of a hint of a feeling that we are sitting in the clouds of glory in that cozy cocoon, symbolic and emblematic, and evoking some of that feeling of being involved or being surrounded by God's presence. Now again, I want to stress the idea we spoke about at the very beginning is still true. We still have to leave our permanent environment, our permanent domicile, our permanent place of residence in order to really get that feeling. There is a condition, if you will. We have to kind of be willing to abandon some of the agenda that dominates our life, some of the focus that dominates our life typically in order to live in the spiritual world. We're moving for seven days into a completely spiritual world. That's the idea. In order to do that, we have to abandon the world that we typically live in. And to the degree that we are able to do that, to the degree we're able to say, I'm leaving this world, I'm entering the next world, that is the degree that we're going to pick up on that experience, on that, on that, that very sublime experience of being in the clouds of glory. If someone says, oh, this is a mitzvah, it's a beautiful mitzvah, and even if a person does a mitzvah and they don't have any lofty aspirations of trying to fulfill some grand ideas, it's still a mitzvah, don't get me wrong, but to pick up on that subtlety of being in God's embrace, so to speak, of being in God's presence, that is conditional upon us leaving and abandoning the other worldview and perspective that we typically have. The Talmud has a great story about the Gentiles in the future. It talks about the Gentiles, the idolaters in the future. They're going to want reward from God. And God says, well, you didn't do any mitzvahs. You don't get any reward. I said, well, we would have. If, if you would have told us, if you would have stared at us, he says, okay, I'll give you one mitzvah. I'll give you the mitzvah of the sukkah. And they might as well make it so hot, like a Houston, a Houston, roasting Houston September. And the, the idolaters are going to get out of the sukkah and they're going to kick the sukkah in disgust. And they might as well say, ah, you see, couldn't we keep an easy mitzvah? Cheap mitzvah. It's very inexpensive. It's not so expensive to make a sukkah. What this is telling us is that even harder than picking up the sublimity of the clouds of glory, like a cloud is something which is very, it's very intangible. It's like a subtlety to it. It's not something you could grab in your hand. right? It does have like a spiritual dimension. That demands that our physical orientation, our physical worldview has to be muted, has to be put on the side. And that is very difficult. And that's the dual, so to speak, dual efforts that we're supposed to invest on this day. Leave one world and enter the confines of God, enter the clouds of glory of God, experience the joy of being like in this transcendental world, invite some of the most important people of our history into your sukkah to be your guests. And it's a spiritual experience and one that can forever change our life. And as we leave, we say, you know what? That was really delightful. I'd love to have more of that. But that's the experience we're trying to tap into on Sukkot. So again, it's very advanced ideas. Typically, we try to stay away from such complex and, and, and spiritual ideas on a very practical level. When I picked this subject, I didn't realize where it's going to take us. But it does, I think, create for us a... a a vision or understanding of what is actually happening on this day. What is actually the meaning of the sukkah? What are these clouds of glory? What changed with the sin of the golden calf? What happened over here at this juncture in history? This was the day that our spiritual environment was upgraded. We got the Mishkan. We started building the Mishkan. And us too today, we have the power to upgrade our spiritual environment as well. And I think it's also noteworthy that the day that we started to build the Mishkan, that's the day that we got the clouds of glory back, or clouds of glory 2.0 back. 
not when we finished it. It's almost like after Yom Kippur, we have those days in the, in the middle to kind of assemble all the parts, all the components needed for our new spiritual edifice. And then it's time to build. And you start building on Sukkot. And right away when you start building, you already upgraded. It's almost like the same idea of, of Yom Kippur. You start the process of repentance and you're already there. You start building your new spiritual environment, your new spiritual world. And right away, those clouds enshroud you. May we all merit to tap into a little bit of that feeling, that subtle feeling of the holiness and the, the transcendental, elevated, sublime experience of the sukkah. May it be a time of, of joy, and may we perpetuate the remembrance and the experience of those clouds of glory. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.